Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Great show for you today talking about what is going on in the digital world. Certainly a hot topic around the world as cybersecurity, hacking, the idea of people being whistleblowers and providing information or protesting online. There's a lot of discussion about the ethics of it, the legality of it, uh, depending on where you live, what jurisdictions you're in. It's certainly a complicated topic and one that I'm very interested in. So I wanted to bring in an expert, and I was very lucky to talk with Alana Morshot, who is a professor of cybersecurity and behavior at Western Sydney University. And she has a new book out called Ethical Hacking from her friends over at University of Ottawa Press, where she gets into some of the gray areas surrounding hacking, the idea of ethical hacking, where the legal issues are surrounding it, and how, even without knowing it, you can get into some trouble depending on where you are and what you're doing, even without knowing it. So it's a, a really complicated topic. I thought she was really great to to talk with me and to break it down in a way that somebody like me, who's certainly not a cybersecurity expert, could understand some of the issues at play, some of the pitfalls, and where all the complications lie. So great discussion with Alana Morshot. So let's get to it. Okay, and Alana Morshot joining us now. First time, Alana, I have to say that we've gone across the international dateline to record an episode. So I really appreciate you joining me today. Uh, Welcome down under. I definitely appreciate it. Uh, Before we really get into it, we were talking before about just the situations uh, in in our respective locales. And one of the things that I I find it so interesting, I don't know why I do, but, you know, here, of course, we're starting to get into the fall. Uh, Tonight in Ottawa, as we record, we're supposed to get our first single digit low overnight, which I'm very excited about. But you're heading into the spring and weather's getting nicer, I presume. It's getting slightly nicer, but look, where I live, winter isn't really all that challenging either. So, I mean, I was at the beach this morning at 6 a.m. It's still winter and it was 12 degrees. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. A few years ago, about five or six years ago, uh, I was in Sydney and I'd been in China and I had a week off from what I was doing in China and I went to, to Australia and my first stop was Sydney and I was there on what the newspapers were saying was the coldest day in 20 or 30 years or something. And it was, I don't know, eight, nine degrees in that range. And I thought that's for the coldest day in a almost a generation. That's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it certainly is one of the reasons why we've decided to stay in Australia. Um, but we yeah, miss and, the and, snow, to be honest with you. I often miss the snow. It's, it's beautiful. Right. You don't realize how beautiful snow is until you're not around it. That's that's true. There there is something nice about it. We should say that you are from Calgary originally, so you have certainly put in your fair share of winter time uh, to, to yes. you know, have a. And we studied in Ottawa, and Montreal as well, so we're familiar with different winters in in Canada. That's for sure. Yes, absolutely. So uh, so let's uh, let's get into the book again. It is ethical hacking. And this is something that certainly has a lot of relevance in contemporary life. 
for a variety of different reasons. But let, let's before we get into some of the specifics of the book, let's get into your background and how you come to this topic. You are a professor of cybersecurity and behavior. So where does that background come from and, and where does your interest in this topic originate for you to become an expert in this field? Uh, look, it started a while ago when I left high school. My best subjects were always math. And when I went to university, I took uh, quite a few units and the computer science and math units I really enjoyed, but there was no women at the time in those units. And I got to say the teaching styles um, at the time left a lot to be desired. And so I, I switched and I transferred out. Uh, my parents always thought that was a bizarre um, move. So I went and finished up a uh, bachelor in communications. And from there, I went to law school. They used to say that people go to law school if they can't do math. That's not the uh, that's not the case for me. Um, I went to, to law school because it was always, you know, helping people was always something that was core to, I guess, my mission as a person. And I did a couple of law degrees, civil and um, batch, bachelor's in civil as well as common law at uh, McGill. And I got fascinated with technology while I was there. I had a couple of new units at the time that, that dealt with the intersection between technology and law. Uh, some of the other students struggled with the units, but I found it literally as easy as breathing. So I thought, hmm, this might be my niche. From there, I went and did a master's and found myself uh, in the very fortunate position of landing a role as a professor at the University of Hong Kong in the law faculty, where I was teaching nothing but cyber law classes. Curiously, while I was there, we had a kind of a bit of a funny story. I kept having spyware and really strange malicious software on my system when I was in Hong Kong, as well as one other professor. So there were two of us that always had this weird malware on our, on our computers. We would have to phone IT. They would have to come and clean it up. And they kept telling us, you know, I don't know what you two are doing, but you guys are getting malware that's different from all of the other systems in the university. And it's hard to clean. And we think it's because you're surfing too much pornography. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm not searching pornography at work. And my colleague was from, from mainland China. And she, she just looked at, we both looked at each other at this guy. And we're just like, we're not surfing pornography. This is not the reason why this is happening. Okay. But that was sort of the, the, the comprehension of cybersecurity in, in the early 2000s was, was not very comprehensive by most people in IT departments. And so I figured at the time, maybe the malicious software was due to the fact that maybe, you know, a government had put some, tried to put some systems onto my computer to see everything that was going through because I had been working with some human rights groups at the time as well. But my colleague, right, from mainland China, she said, oh, of course, they're, that's on everybody's system. So it can't be that because you have something special on your system. She figured it was we were being targeted because oh, I can't even remember at the time. She had her own conspiracy theory. The reality is we never really knew why our systems were being affected more than others. But it set me on a journey to learn far more about spyware and malicious software. And I was already in cyber law at the time and everything cybersecurity. I started to devour the technical literature and I, at that point, went and did a PhD. Ironically, there's only one chapter of law in my PhD. The rest is all an integration of economics, political science, computer science, uh, you name it, it's in there. And 
as I took a position in, in uh, law school, I started to really get into looking at cybersecurity incidences, some of the ways that you could disrupt the different models. And around the 2007, 2008 mark, cybersecurity and cybercrime took a really different um, bend. It turned a corner and it became organized. And so you no longer had you know, your hacker sitting in the basement with you know, strong technical skills, hacking into systems in order to you know, commit credit thought. I mean, that's always been the case. That's always going to be the case. But it became a lot more organized. And as soon as it became organized, things just started to change. And then you had the introduction of mobile phones. It wasn't just a privilege. It seems like you're almost disadvantaged now if everybody doesn't have a mobile phone. And so this whole way of existing with technology has changed so drastically in the last 15 years. And of course, with that has come a whole new range of actors into the cybersecurity space. And you don't want to say good or bad or black or white in terms of hacking, because most of what goes on is in a giant gray zone. And so my interest started to occur when I would start to get these encrypted messages from people who I had no idea who they were, wanting legal advice about their cybersecurity activities. And again, sometimes I knew who they were. Um, most of the time I didn't. And so I would have to assume that what they were telling me to be mostly correct but anyone trained in law knows that clients will never actually, it's rare that they will tell you everything about their particular problem. You have to tease that out over time. Or they might tell you the things that they perceive to be important, which actually aren't the things that you need in order to help them better with their problem. So I was getting these strange requests coming through and I was really getting a sense of what was happening in that space based on the different requests for legal information around a range of activities uh, within what I would generally describe as the ethical hacking space. And so over time, I realized that I had built up this insane expertise around the law and various notions of ethical hacking. So online civil disobedience, hacktivism, penetration testing, security vulnerability disclosure, counterattack, hackback, security activism, all of it. And it's still today, you know, the, the requests still come in for legal information. And I'm constantly surprised how people can continually to get themselves into trouble for things that they think are very innocuous. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of those things that is so interesting, just from a layman's perspective of the amount of information that is available and the amount of things you kind of agree to as well in a digital space that you don't actually read or aren't conscious of is kind of interesting. So, so let's get into the idea of, of ethical hacking, because again, I'm a total layman on this subject, but it, it strikes me that legal, uh, legally, there is a gap between what laws around the world say uh, can happen in the digital space and the, the regulations governing digital space and what is actually capable uh, from a, a technological perspective. So how do you frame the idea of ethical hacking, recognizing that there may be some sort of a gap, or at least my perception at least, is that there is a gap between the legal reality and the practical reality of what takes place in the digital sphere? So, I mean, there's this whole theory that the law can't keep up with technology. I don't, actually don't think that's true. 
you can word law in a really broad way that could capture a whole range of different activities. So that's not the issue here. The, the issue is, it's not even whether something's legal or illegal. Almost in all instances that I'm going to talk about today, it's actually illegal to do the acts in question. But whether or not you're doing something illegal doesn't mean you're ever going to get charged with something or pursued civilly for um, funds or damages. What people really need to know is when is it okay for me to cross certain lines and boundaries in terms of, you know, someone coming after me to prosecute and when it's permissible. And believe it or not, that is a horrifically complex area of discovery because it's based on political will and policy, very little to do with the law. So ethical hacking, if you were to ask a computer scientist, is really pen testing. It's someone who gets paid in order to break into a corporation's security. So they might get paid to penetrate through the firewall and all of the security barriers that they would have on their data and their various networks and systems. And they might also be uh, paid to social engineer their physical way into ability to see what they can access once they're there. But for me, ethical hacking is much broader. And so for me, it's the nonviolent use of a technology in pursuit of a cause, political or other, which is often legally and morally ambiguous. So it's the whole gray zone that we have happening. So I've already said earlier that it deals with online civil disobedience, hacktivism, uh, counterattack, counter hackback, security, activism, and increasingly in one of the fastest growing industries, the security vulnerability and bug um, finding industry. So things have changed a lot for hackers over the, the, the generations. Um, there's a lot more legal ways of, for example, honing in on your skills. And then, of course, as people have become more skilled up, they realize it's a really good way to protest and to write some of the things that they perceive to be ethically wrong that are happening in the world at the moment. Again, from this layman's perspective, I immediately think of the famous examples in North America here of someone like Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, those type of people where it feels to me from the outside looking in that they're doing things that they view as patriotic or even whistleblowing, but legally they have gotten into trouble. Is that that realm where this is that gray area? Is that the sort of stuff you're looking at? Look, that's gray heading towards the darker edges. Um, okay. I think those are those are extreme examples. And, and certainly they would fall within the purview of ethical hacking. But there's so much more that goes on on an everyday basis that falls within that. that. So even like a Twitter campaign, right? So we okay. think it fairly innocuous. Like, so the, the best, it's funny, ethical hacking is full of funny stories. And so, well, they're funny to me. And so no offense if someone gets offended, but... If you live in my world, you just can't make up the stuff that happens and comes through your email box. Like literally you open your email, you have a look at the question, you're like, wow, I couldn't have dreamt that in a million years. I should probably start writing movie scripts. <laughs> so the the one example that's quite common and open in Canada was when Vic Taos was the Minister for Public Safety and he was doing quite a lot of work, um, his team and his units around cybersecurity. And they wanted to implement uh, a range of surveillance legislation that allowed ISPs to retain uh, metadata for quite a long time without destroying, et cetera, et cetera. And Canadians uh, really didn't like that. And so Canada actually probably has one of the strongest cultural climates 
and lack of appetite for surveillance than a number of other uh, Western countries in the world. And so it was really funny because he had a, a Twitter page at the time. And so everybody was tweeting into Vic Town's Twitter page, telling them everything that was mundane in their life. And I don't know if you remember this, Sean. So people would tweet, would tweet in and say, dear Vic, I ate cornflakes for breakfast. <laughs> dear yeah. Vic... I use four. I use four sheets of toilet paper to wipe my butt this morning. Like it was, and they, and it is actually the biggest Twitter campaign in Canadian history. So much so that it crashed the system. So it actually inadvertently caused a DDoS. So a denial of service attack where you just get too much traffic, the servers can't handle it, and then it just returns back like an error message. So, right? But I mean, that would have been legal right because everybody has a right to protest but the reality is that ddos attacks occur constantly on the internet and everybody assumes that they're illegal but it really depends on the mechanism it could just literally be from too many people sending in complaints or protest requests to a server right and so yeah. we have all of these strange examples in law where and there was one um, in Australia in particular where, you know, the judges just are not understanding what's happening behind the scenes. And they're making some pretty abrasive comments in the context of what should never have been um, commented on in this way. So in Australia, the government wanted to implement some censorship provisions. Now, it's important to note that the one thing I love living in Australia, it's fantastic, but it really surprised me when I arrived here because we don't have a Bill of Rights in Australia or a Charter of Human Rights and Freedom. And we're almost the, the only Western democracy in the world that doesn't have one. And so it makes the passing of legislation and the scrutinizing of legislation prior infinitely more important because we don't have a legal system where we can challenge things on the basis of violation of human rights once they've been implemented. Right. So you have to get it right first and have political activism, or you're going to be stuck with a law that could be fairly abrasive over time. And you're not going to get rid of it until you actually have a new government that actively will remove it. And that's seldom the case. And so in this case, they were wanting to implement and mandate that every internet service provider in Australia had to block sites. And at first it was child pornography sites, right? And so it was gonna be legislatively done, which was a bit silly because all of the ISPs already blocked those sites, right? It wasn't a thing. What was really happening is that the wording of the legislation, they wanted to block illegal sites of any sort. And so that's really got a lot of uh, people upset within Australia because the definition of illicit or illegal could be taken is as long as a piece of string. And so immediately people started to think, well, really what this is about um, is about blocking any type of pornography, even between consenting adults. It's about blocking sites that will link to peer-to-peer um, -peer and other different um, intellectual property uh, violation for lack of better word sites. And so people were really upset with it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of them logged on anonymous had a get up call to, to effectively protest this, what was happening. And so what you did is you logged on to a system called low orbit cannon 
and you just typed in the name of the website that you wanted to attack. The attack's a little bit, protest is actually the right word here. And then you press click and it leveraged your computer in order to, to completely keep responding and sending requests to that website. And it ended up taking down the parliamentary website. So not the back end of the system where everything was important to run government, but the DDoS took down the front end where you couldn't access, for example, who were the members of parliament and information such as this. What people didn't realize, and there was a lot of younger people participating in this protest, was that when you logged into Loic, they didn't actually know what they were doing was illegal. And so one of the, the people that um, acted within this DDoS attack was actually a, a young kid, a little over 18, close to where I live. And all of a sudden, you know, the police come knocking on his door and they're arresting him for conspiracy to all of these hacking provisions and committing crime. And she's going, what are you talking about? I was just protesting that I don't want this to, to come into the light of day. And they're just like, well, you participated in a DDoS attack. And so now, you know, you're possibly facing a jail sentence. And what was really problematic is when they got to the court, the judge in the question equated it with an act of terrorism. Wow. Yeah. Like that's insane. It's just insane. I mean, what would be, and then it just got you thinking, and this wasn't just one request coming in for legal information. I get tons and tons of this. And so I started to think about, well, well, what's the difference here? You have enough protesters that people can't, maybe can't access the parliament website for, I don't know, 24 hours, 48 hours, whatever. How is that any different, right? From going to the directory board at parliament and standing outside with a hundred people with pickets protesting right. the bill. Right. So you can't see some of the information around the parliamentary site. What is different about cyber that would make a judge think that this is an act of cyber terrorism? How much of it is you, you mentioned this earlier, sort of the method through which it happens? Like if, if the plan is to overload a website and rather than, you know, sign up and have this DDoS attack on the site or, or overrun the site, if everyone just logged into the site it themselves and like refreshed pages or searched internally in the site, like, and that caused it to crash from too much use of just people actually going in and manually doing it. Is that part of the, what distinguishes it here and, and where that gray area is where if, you know, 2 million people go to a site and it's not built for that and they're just there looking at information and it crashes, that's one thing. But if you sign up for this service that does it, it creates this ambiguity? It does. And in fact, in, in, in Germany, the courts have said this is a right to freedom of expression. They've upheld oh, wow. it as a political protest. And so you have different jurisdictions going through the courts, coming up with completely different, I guess, answers to the call of this. Now, there's almost no ambiguity if someone were to break into your system and defraud you of $2 million, right, through yep. a cyber attack. You're going to be surprised how uniform those laws, those laws are across countries around the world. But with ethical hacking, where there's this political protest component or something other than the what the law was designed to, to do, right, to really go after these cyber criminals that are stealing lots of money and wreaking crazy havoc in systems, it's a blanket provision. The, the legal provisions cover all of it, and they kind of channel all of you into this criminal um, basket, if you would like. And so 
different countries as they get these type of things percolated through the courts are taking very different stances on things. Um, and within Australia, I honestly don't think a similar scenario going through would attract the same kind of cyber terrorism rhetoric, because I think there has been a lot of education that's been happening within the judicial system to better understand technologies, because there almost isn't a case anymore that comes before the court that doesn't involve technology now, whether it's similar or criminal. Right. But we still see these disturbing trends. So at the moment, we're starting to see a completely different disturbing trend, though. The amount of software bugs in systems, so like vulnerabilities in, in systems, every app we use, every technical device, every piece of IoT, our fridges, our smart light bulbs, they all have cybersecurity vulnerabilities and bugs in the code. And so in the past, people used to, and it's quite funny, hackers would go in, find the vulnerabilities, and then if they were ethical, they would normally report the vulnerability back to the company for them to fix. And sometimes hackers would go in and fix the, they would actually just fix the code for the company. And really? then exit. It still goes on today. I can't begin to tell you the amount of requests I get for legal information on, can I go in there and fix their code? Um, they know that the problem's there, but they haven't done anything about it. And I realize 100,000 users' data is left out in the open and is vulnerable. Can I go in and fix that code? And I have to say to them, no, you can't, because that's actually an area of the law where people are still going to jail. Companies are not happy. Some companies are really not happy if you approach them and tell them you they need to fix things. Um, we've had famous incidences at conference where people were really upset because there was one incident that involved the SCADA system, which is on every piece of critical infrastructure in the world, water, water sewage, electrical grids, they all connect to SCADA systems. And they had a major software vulnerability, which was known to uh, Cisco at the time. And Cisco hadn't fixed it for a long, long, long time. And the security professional in question just thought, this is insanity. You know, the, all of the world's most critical systems are at risk at the moment. So he disclosed elements of the vulnerability at a cybersecurity conference in Las Vegas known as Black Hat and soon found himself, um, you know, meeting with lawyers uh, and was in pursuit of copyright violation and criminal charges. And so... Cisco got such a bad rep for that act that what emerged was something really curious. So these things called vulnerability and bug markets, where now the more mature companies in the world, they pay people to find vulnerabilities and bugs in their system. And most of my students make $2,000. A lot of my students make, you know, one or $2,000 a month by actively finding bugs in, in computer code, and then they get paid wow. for it. And that's become the norm. Well, it seems like that's something a company should want, right? Yeah, but they still end up going to jail. And here's the problem, right? So companies, they they disclose their vulnerability and bug bounty programs, right? And so they're attracting all of the talent, you know, through these baseline models to come in and solve their problems. I mean, Google alone, when they first started, they were paying up to $1.5 million for a vulnerability in their browsers or their systems. 
they haven't had to make a payment in, in several years because that system is now so secure. And it's secure because they paid other people to find the vulnerabilities that were big in there. So they're attracting, they're using financial gain to attract the world's best people in vulnerability hunting. And those are hackers. The only bad thing is you actually have no idea if the person who's finding the code in your pain is also the person who's breaking into other systems and making payments and double dipping. So right. it's an insane gray area. Um, yeah. But yeah. If you go outside the bounds boundaries of scope of the contract, however, that's when you find yourself in jail. And that's what's happening a lot at the moment is that people don't know what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do once they're in the system. Right. Well, how much of that is outcome-based? Because I'm thinking here as, as we're talking that if someone goes in and does something that's causes like the clan's website to collapse and on, like everyone's going to be okay fine it's the clan like big deal uh that's good that it's shut down but if somebody goes in and does something that shuts down the website of you know a, of a charity then everyone the, the, the response is going to be well that should be illegal like it, even though the act of going in and attacking a website hacking into a website is the same does the outcome of or who is being attacked does that contribute to some of this gray area and the response that governments have to it? Absolutely. So, I mean, a charity is an example where nothing would happen, to be honest with you. Um, mm. If you, if you're ever in anything to do with defense in any country in the world, that's an automatic ticket to jail. Right. Um, there's just no, the, the, the boundaries are super clear there. If you're in someone's system and you take source code, you make a copy of the source code, you're going to jail. Like there are some boundaries that can never be broken on this. Um, and honestly, if you're going in and attacking certain ministers that have power within government, they're going to pursue that and have police pursue you for it for a range of things. In terms of other companies, I mean, it just depends if they want to pursue private companies, they would pursue civilly not necessarily criminally criminally so they would just want um they would want reparation for damages caused but you still have a right to protest against companies that's that's a legal right if, if it's not involving cyber that's still a right you have you can go and pick it out some outside of the place of employment right right if you were picketing about something that well, maybe in this day and age whether it's climate change or something unethical that you perceive the company to be doing you're still allowed to go and protest if you go and you get uh, in many jurisdictions, right, you have to go and get a license in order for that protest to happen and have clearance, but it's still allowed. There's no equivalent in cyber. So you mentioned earlier that the part of this is the organization of the, the hacking. Like, how sophisticated are these organizations? Because if you use the example or the comparable of a protest, I can go to a business and protest on my own. I can also organize a campaign and have you know, 200 people with me when I show mm -hmm. up at the business. So how sophisticated are these organizations in putting together some of these hacking programs that, that you're discussing? And, and you know, what is the reach that they have in bringing people together? The reach is there. And so you would just have to, if you monitor the IRC channel, which is the internet relay channel, you go there. But I mean, well, honestly, 90% of the stuff on that you find in those channels is just a bunch of nonsense. And their ability to mobilize people to do things is pretty hit and miss. You'd be really surprised. And so 
in order for someone to actually pull off a protest, you would have to get to the point where enough people actually agreed and signed on to something that they find to be really unethical or, or immoral to, to come and help. And there's no, because I've analyzed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these incidences. And there's no rhyme to reason with what gets up and what doesn't. Mm. Um, so in some instances, you can easily identify with the reason as to why they would have done something. And in other instances, it's almost really specifically a small pocket of civilization or a small pocket of people within a jurisdiction that would have found that unethical. Everybody else, the reasonable person, for lack of a better word, would not have found that activity unethical and they would never consent to the protest. It's all over the map. So the problem is that some people pursue their activities online based on their own personal set of ethics, which may not you know, match with the rest of society. So for the average person who, who might want to get involved in, in some of these ethical hacking, some of these campaigns as a form of protest, what, what type of advice do you normally give people so that they don't find themselves legally compromised and that they can navigate some of these gray areas where things are a little ambiguous? The reality is that social media is probably the best way to protest still. Do you know what I'm saying? Like a, we, we assume social media has been around for a long time, but it actually hasn't. It's really only been a recent advent. And so protesting on social media is likely to deliver more of a campaign than hacking into someone's system and, and doing other things. But what we've seen happen in the last three years, because there have been a lot of um, arrests and profiles, is that they're becoming the players that are still in the space, because a lot of people have gone to jail, are becoming more sophisticated and more secretive, because they don't want to end up in jail. So that the whole notion of trust is eroded. They're still in systems doing things and pulling information, but they're not highlighting it and flagging it in the media anymore in any kind of deliberate way that that attracts attention to themselves. So that's the shift I've seen in the last four years. With that shift, are you optimistic or pessimistic, or maybe it's not that binary, about where this is going in the future in, in terms of the clarity of it and trying to, to flesh out some of these gray areas? Two years ago, I was optimistic. I'm not as optimistic anymore. The positive, because I see the following, right? Like if you actually went and had a look at the hacking provisions found in most legal codes, so you have things based around unauthorized access to a system, um, interference with it, or you know, altering the data in any way, attracts a criminal provision. But if you actually go and look at the case law, almost all the case law for unauthorized access had, tends to do with the prosecution of, let's say, a police officer who used someone else's password in order to gain information about their ex-wife or their ex-husband or something like that. It's actually not being used to go after the people committing, you know, horrendous fraud, stealing uh, and espionage of things in people's systems. Like the provisions aren't being used that much in most parts of the world for that. In but in the last two to three years, I've got to say the FBI has become incredibly good now at starting to prosecute the true cyber criminals in our systems. And they've started to get a lot more organized on a global level. And sure, cybercrime still goes, you know, you'll make money for a long time doing it. 
But law enforcement is now able to catch up and prosecute people they couldn't before. And that's been a real game changer in the last two years. And so now that they're focusing far more on what they, in my opinion, they should be focusing on, there should be less room for them to use their precious resources towards people who are being perceived increasingly as protesters, right? Um, right. And the main reason for that is most people, most people protest through social media now. And they're not going to actually know about the other ways in which people protest um, that are much more secretive um, in terms of keeping world order and more um, morality. I don't right. know if I can go too much more into that without disclosing things. No, for sure. And, and obviously we don't want to you know, compromise anything in, in that area. Yeah. And so moving forward and, and sort of we'll get get out of here on this, like, you know, there's a, there's an election going on in the United States right now. We may very well have an election go on in Canada in the not too distant future. And cybersecurity seems to be central now to political discussions as well as international relations and the way in which countries interact with each other. Uh, trade agreements are central in terms of protecting intellectual property and, and those sorts of things. Do you think that there is a long-term ramifications for some of the ethical hacking that's going on in this larger geopolitical arena? I'll tell you what's going on. The, the people with the highest skill set levels at the moment are creating, when they do contracts for governments and private corporations, some of them are creating their own personal, private, secretive, highly sophisticated backdoor into the things that they're paid to program and do for different agents, governments, and entities around the world. That is a trend I'm seeing. I tend to find a lot of people at the high level in that hacking and cybersecurity field have their own very distinctive set of ethics and morality. Like I said before, sometimes it matches up and sometimes it doesn't. And so it's a bit of a scary proposition, right? Where those expectations and morality match with society and they're putting in secretive back doors, fine. It probably will lead to some accountability, but where they're on their own personal mission, where their ethics really are, you know, represent very few people on the planet, I think we're in for some potential hairy and scary bumps down the track. So definitely a, another reason amongst many to go and check out the book again. It's Ethical Hacking. And Alana, where can people find it if they're looking for the book? Online. I believe it's uh, for sale on um, almost every major publishing um, websites. It's for sale even in Target and Walmart, um, Amazon local publishers, and then as well within the University of Ottawa Press, the publishers, uh, which I'm grateful for because the book is published with a Creative Commons license, which means that you have lots of more liberties um, with the book and what you want to do with it. The other thing I like to say is that if you're listening and you're thinking, what kind of a job could I do with cybersecurity if I went to go and study it? There's an absolute skill shortage at the moment in cybersecurity, so it's a fairly lucrative area to get into, and you don't have to uh, commit and break any laws in order to have a successful career in cybersecurity. Sometimes the media portrays it as only the best hackers doing all these malicious things end up finding cybersecurity jobs afterwards. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Um, there's so many legitimate ways to go in and learn. 
Industry is razor keen for women. If you're a woman and you're even vaguely interested in cybersecurity, come on in. And they're increasingly interested in now in diversification of culture and backgrounds coming into cybersecurity. So have a look, do some reading, and maybe think about maybe a, a change in career or studying cybersecurity. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a growing field. And uh, yeah, if, if anyone is, is looking for a career change or you're younger and thinking about uh, entering the, the fields, uh, you know, you can, there's probably worse places to study too if you wanted to head uh, head out to Western Sydney University, right? Uh, or, or anywhere. I mean, Defense Now yeah. is recruiting out of year 10. They recruit out of year 10, wow. so grade 10. Wow. Yeah, that's how, that's how big of an area it is. And I don't know what the Canadian situation, but the Australian government's just announced $2 billion in cyber skills um, that they're going to be handing out across wow. the, the for development of the workforce. Well, I would assume that the Canadian government is quite interested. They'll probably be in doing the, something similar. Yeah, I mean, can, the Canadian Revenue Agency just had a major hack of its uh, of its databases and servers and stuff. So, you know, it's it's definitely an issue that is front of mind for a lot of folks in this country right now as mm. well. So, uh, and everywhere uh, else lot, in the world. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, a lot to unpack. So, again, we encourage everybody to go get the book. And Alana Morshot, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Uh, so donate, I donate all the pro, all of the profits to scholarships for kids that wouldn't normally be able to study cybersecurity. Oh, that's awesome! Um, yeah, if they're from in particular a disadvantaged background, so that goes towards a scholarship. So there's open access availability for for some of it, but if you can buy the book, obviously, it goes to a great cause there. So uh, it does indeed. Yeah, uh, so terrific. So thank you so much, Elena. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time, Sean. So there you have it, my discussion with Alana Morshot. And I thank her again for taking the time to join us. And of course, the book, Ethical Hacking, you can find it from our friends over at University of Ottawa Press. So that will do it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever it is. You get your show, do the likes, the comments, the ratings, all that kind of stuff. Helps other people find the show, keeps us going as well. And do head over to activehistory.ca. A lot of great content over there through the month of August. And we're ramping up back for the fall schedule when things get a little more busy over on the website. But uh, there's been some great stuff over the summer, as well as the entire catalog of now 159 episodes of the podcast and moving forward we're going to keep the weekly schedule i think probably at least till the end of the year so if you have ideas for what you want to hear do let me know history slam at gmail.com or of course you can find me on twitter at the sean graham so that'll do it for this week we'll be back with you again next week but until then if you're up and you see enrico palazzo please say hi for me Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.